American Catholic History is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Hello and welcome to American Catholic History, sponsored by Beatrix Media, providing writing, digital marketing, website strategy and construction, and search engine optimization services. Visit BeatrixMedia.com. Experience your world communicated. If you like American Catholic history, please help others find it by sharing this episode and giving us a five-star rating wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Noelle Heaster-Crow. And I'm Tom Crow. Today we're talking about the first American male to be canonized, St. John Newman, the immigrant from Bohemia who became a zealous pastor of souls in the United States. St. John Newman's life is a study in patience and humility, plus hard work, all for the good of the kingdom. And what good he did. Yeah, seriously. He built so many churches and schools in in New York and Pennsylvania, and his ministry reached from New York City to North Central Ohio, down to Baltimore with years in the Buffalo area, Pittsburgh, and even some trips here to Steubenville, Ohio. Right. During the years he was stationed at St. Philomena in Pittsburgh, he would come the 45 miles out here to Steubenville to minister at our parish, St. Peter's. His signature is in our baptismal registry from way back then, and our Perpetual Adoration Chapel is dedicated in his honor. Saints have been everywhere in this country, some canonized and some not. We just need the vision, patience, and the interior peace to see and appreciate them. And the holy people who went before very often crossed paths. In this example, while St. John was pastor of St. Philomena in Pittsburgh, his assistant was Father Francis Xavier Silos, who has himself been beatified. We'll tell his story definitely one day. And then a few years later, when Newman was stationed at St. Alphonsus Parish in Norwalk, Ohio, which is up near Lake Erie in north central Ohio, he may well have crossed paths with Father Jean-Baptiste Lamy and Father John Machabouf. We told Lamy's story in episode 102. He was the first bishop and archbishop of Santa Fe after serving in Ohio for about a decade. And his good friend, Father John Machabouf, was eventually the first bishop of Denver after serving in Ohio during the same period. So yeah, lots of crisscrossing paths among the big names of the early church. It was a very small Catholic world back then. We'll talk about a lot more crisscrossing in a few moments. So let's get into St. John Newman's story. Sure. So John Newman was born on March 28, 1811 in Prachetice, Bohemia, which is in modern day Czech Republic. He was the third of his parents' six children. He was baptized the same day he was born and given the name John Nepomucene after a very important 14th century Bohemian saint. He was a dedicated reader, and his parents allowed him to continue formal schooling after he was 10 years old. Most boys left school at that age and went to work. He completed his schooling at 20 years old in the town of Budweis. Then he had to choose among studying to become a physician, a lawyer, or a priest. He decided to become a physician initially because he liked science better than theology or philosophy, and also because he didn't have any influential persons in his life who would endorse him for seminary studies. His mother, however, recognized that his preference lay in becoming a priest. Don't mess with mama, right? Yeah. So she encouraged him to apply anyhow. He did. And to everyone's surprise, he was accepted. Not to hers. Nope. 
So he left for seminary in November of 1831, studying for the Diocese of Budweiss. Yes, that's the same city that the pale lager beer produced by Anheuser-Busch is named after. In his second year of seminary, he began to read reports from the Leopoldine Society about the dire need for German-speaking priests in the U.S. Now, we'll do an entire episode on the Leopoldine Society at some point, but in short, it was an organization that raised money in Europe to support German Catholics in the United States. Some of that money aided German-speaking priests to emigrate to the U.S. and get set up. He read these reports, and his heart was stirred to go be a missionary in America. This, of course, required him to learn English as well, so he petitioned to be sent to seminary in Prague, a more cosmopolitan city than Budweiss. And they have better beer, too. <laughs> I'm sure the beer actually made in Budweiss would be more to your taste than Budweiser. Well, perhaps, but I'm not sure I believe you. We'll just have to go to Budweiss and check it out. <laughs> That is a really good idea. Sounds good. Let's go to the Czech Republic and then we'll actually go to Prague too. Now, yeah, and let's not lose our tickets this time. That would be a really good idea. <laughs> Honeymoon disasters. <laughs> Anyhow, so... <laughs> Listeners, we almost didn't make it past day one in this marriage. <laughs> Anyhow, so he went to Prague for his seminary studies, which I understand is a great city, though I didn't go there on my honeymoon. And there he learned French and English. His grades were excellent, and by the time his seminary studies were done, he could converse in Czech, German, English, Italian, Spanish, and French. And he was capable in Greek and Latin. So now, in 1835, he was ready to be ordained and to make his way to the U.S. with the help of the Leopoldine Society. But both of those got tangled up in unfortunate circumstances. First, the Bishop of Woodweiss got seriously ill, so the ordination was delayed. Then the diocesan leaders decided to cancel his ordination because, well, they already had too many priests. Some priests who had been ordained the year before still lacked assignments. At the same time, the slow pace of communications between Central Europe and the American bishops caused the financial support to become less certain. One supporter had written to the Bishop of Philadelphia, Henry Conwell, about receiving Newman in that diocese. Eventually, he found out that the need in Philadelphia had been filled, so that opportunity dried up. But another clerical friend encouraged him to write to the bishop of the new diocese of Vincennes, Simon Brute, who just happened to be in Paris at the time. So he did, as did three other German-speaking priests. Of the four, Newman's letter never reached Brute, so he had no chance of being accepted. Bishop Brute, we should note, is another saintly immigrant bishop who did a lot to form the church in this country. We talked about him in episode 86. Be sure to check it out. During the same time, however, Newman also had written to another American bishop, John Dubois, the third bishop of New York. We told Dubois' story in episode 39. He's another one who isn't on the path to sainthood for some reason, because he probably should be. This episode is practically a who's who of great early American bishops, that generation of bishops shortly after John Carroll's days. The only one we really don't talk about is Benedict Joseph Flaget. Who, another one, should be probably... On the and path to sainthood, Definitely. Yes. And we still got two more great bishops to mention. They're going to come up later in the story. Right. 
But no response had come from Dubois just yet. So with Philadelphia not an option, no responses yet from either Bertet or Dubois, Newman just decided to board his ship and come over. He was confident that the need was great enough that someone would take him in. But there's three factors that need to be stipulated or mentioned here. One, remember that he wasn't yet ordained. He wasn't even a subdeacon. Two, he hadn't been given dismissorial letters by the Bishop of Budweiss, so this was highly irregular. And three, since he had no letter of acceptance from any American bishop, the Leopoldine Society could not help him financially. He managed to secure just enough money elsewhere, and so in April of 1836, he set sail from Le Havre aboard a massive three-masted ship called Europa. The voyage took 40 days a significant number. During that voyage, he read St. Francis de Sales' classic Introduction to the Devout Life and spent a good deal of time practicing his English. He arrived in New York and stepped ashore on Manhattan on June 2nd, the Feast of Corpus Christi, which at the time was still observed on Thursday and not moved to Sunday anywhere. He immediately went to the nearest Catholic church, which was probably venerable old St. Patrick because it's the one closest those landing piers at Battery Park. The pastor gave him the address of Bishop John Dubois, and Newman went directly to the bishop's residence. At the time, he had only one dollar in his pocket, and the clothes on his back, as threadbare and unkempt as they were, were the only clothes he had. So he presented quite a sad sight when he arrived at the bishop's residence near St. Patrick's Cathedral on Mott Street. Bishop Dubois was both shocked and ecstatic to see him. Dubois had received his request to be welcomed to New York, and Dubois had actually sent a response back, inviting him to come to New York. But he had sent it so recently that Newman never actually received it. The response and Newman had sort of crossed each other, crossing the ocean. Newman explained both that he was not yet ordained and that he hadn't brought any dismissorial letters. Dubois was unaffected. His only concern was, how soon can we ordain you? Bishop Dubois might have ordained him on the spot, but Newman asked for some time to prepare himself, which Dubois granted. But not much. Seventeen days later, June 19th, he was ordained a subdeacon, and then a deacon on June 24th, and finally a priest the next day on June 25th, 1836, in Old St. Patrick's Cathedral in New York. After his ordination... He expressed his ecstasy in his diary, writing, O Jesus, you poured out the fullness of your grace over me yesterday. You made me a priest and gave me the power to offer you up to God. Ah, God, this is too much for my soul. Angels of God, all you saints of heaven, come down and adore my Jesus, because what my heart says is only the imperfect echo of what Holy Church tells me to say. I will pray to you that you may give to me holiness and to all the living and dead pardon that someday we may all be together with you, our dearest God. He was sent to aid the priests ministering to the German Catholics who lived in the region around Buffalo. Along the way, he stopped to offer mass for the German Catholics in Rochester. He was only there for a few days because the Sunday after his arrival, Father Joseph Prost, a redemptorist, arrived to take over that mission. This was Newman's first interaction with a Redemptorist, but immediately his heart was moved in the direction of religious life. He continued on to Buffalo in July. He was assigned a region of the parish that had about 400 families spread out over a 30-mile diameter. The church was still under construction when he arrived, its roof had not yet been added, and during his first Mass, 
non-Catholics of the area actually threw rocks over the wall, with one even landing on the altar. But once he was there, he dove into the work of the parish, teaching, offering Mass and the other sacraments, doing anointings, baptisms, marriages, confessions, all of it. At first, he didn't ride a horse, so he walked the many, many miles every day over the untamed terrain. For four years, he was constantly on the move through his parish region, working relentlessly. Eventually, his parishioners did prevail upon him to start riding a horse, but he didn't take to it very well. During his time, he also built churches, schools, rectories. He did a fair bit of the work with his own hands. But at the end of four years, he was spent and tired of being on his own. His health was breaking down badly and his spiritual life was suffering. He spoke frequently with his confessor, Father Pox. He talked about his spiritual aridity and his desire for greater fraternity in his priesthood. Eventually, Father Pox agreed that he was more suited to religious life. So with Father Pox's encouragement, he wrote to Father Prost in September of 1840, asking permission to join the Redemptorists. Father Prost wrote back quickly, accepting him. Father Newman, therefore, wrote to his bishop back in New York to let him know that he wished to become a Redemptorist, and asking that the bishop send a priest, or preferably two, to take on his duties. What happened next was good for Newman. Father Prost and Father Pox both advised him not to wait for the bishop's response, but simply to leave his Buffalo post and report to the Redemptorist parish in Pittsburgh. They advised him to allow the two of them to handle things with the bishop. Now, this was a fraught thing because the Bishop of New York was no longer the accommodating John Dubois. Dubois had died and was resting peacefully, buried under the paving stones of the walkway to the cathedral. No, this bishop was a wholly different man. This was Dagger John Hughes. Now, we haven't done his story yet, but John Hughes was perhaps one of the five most significant bishops in American history. The only reason he did not become America's first cardinal was because he had made enough important people dislike him. Hughes was not a man who took bad news well, and he was not a man who liked losing an excellent and hard-working priest. <laughs> I can only imagine the wrath he turned on Fathers Pox and Prost, but they simply reminded him that canon law provided for Newman to act exactly as he had. Bishop Hughes didn't like it, but he accepted the reality and gave the necessary dismissorial letters. John Newman traveled to St. Philomena in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, arriving the morning of Sunday, October 18, 1840. At the time, St. Philomena gathered for Mass in an industrial warehouse. Father Newman found out when he arrived that he was scheduled to offer the Misa Cantata that day. Welcome to Pittsburgh. You've got the Big Mass. <laughs> yeah. yeah, really. <laughs> During his years at St. Philomena, he was made pastor, and as we mentioned at the outset, his assistant was Blessed Francis Xavier Silos. Together they built a beautiful new church for the parish. Pittsburgh's Bishop Michael O'Connor quipped that the priests of St. Philomena were all saints. He may have said it with a twinkle in his Irish eye, but it certainly was prescient. One is now canonized, the other very likely will be. From his base in Pittsburgh, he also ministered to the other nearby parishes, including, as we said, our own parish here in Steubenville, St. Peter. And this was also the area when he was stationed in Norwalk, Ohio, and may well have crossed paths with Father Lamy and Machabouf, who had only been in America for a few years at this point. After about a year and a half, he made his final vows. Uh, it was January 16, 1842, and he was officially a Redemptorist. And only at this point was he moved for a time to the Redemptorist Parish in New York. I wonder what Bishop Hughes thought of that. Yeah, probably not nothing good. <laughs> 
Newman wasn't there long. In 1843 or 1844, he was moved to Baltimore. His reputation for holiness, hard work, and dedication made him such a respected figure within the Redemptorist order that he was elected their superior in the United States in 1847. But the characteristics which made him a great pastor and a great shepherd of souls didn't translate well to being the superior of the order. He disliked the role, and his brothers weren't thrilled with his leadership. So he was only in that role for three years, returning, for good he hoped, to parish work. But alas, it was not to be. He had gained enough attention among the church leadership, I mean, he was in Baltimore, so of course they noticed him, that when Francis Kenrick, Bishop of Philadelphia, was made Archbishop of Baltimore in 1851, Kenrick turned to Newman to succeed him in the city of brotherly love. Newman, of course, was horrified. He asked not to be named bishop and even asked nuns to pray for that intention, begging them, pray, pray that God will ward off a great danger from the American church. Such a prayer from most men might be false humility or a desire just not to have to take on such a weighty responsibility. But Newman really meant it. He believed he would be a disaster of a bishop. But since God knows what he's doing, he knew better about Newman's abilities. On March 28, 1852, John Newman was consecrated the fourth bishop of Philadelphia. The appointment was an interesting one in a few ways. For one, the city of Philadelphia was the most affluent old money city in the nation at the time. Within the American Catholic experience, it had the longest unbroken history of Catholicism being practiced publicly, since the colony of Pennsylvania was the only colony that did not outright forbid the public practice of the Catholic faith. So the trustees of Philadelphia's old parishes were some of the most entrenched and powerful. Yeah, we'll do an episode on trusteeism at some point, the good and the bad about it. But one thing was certain, John Newman was not the sort of man who would tussle with trustees in a political struggle. His style was more pastoral action. He had dealt with troublesome trustees in the Buffalo area and only overcame their challenges through his personal holiness and reputation for unquestionable integrity. But in Philadelphia, as bishop, he'd have to deal with the challenges that the trustees pose in a much more head-on manner. Another challenge was the ongoing trouble from the anti-Catholic Know-Nothings. Just eight years earlier, Know-Nothings had rioted in Philadelphia, killing a dozen Catholics, burning down two Catholic churches, and attempting to burn down more. We told this harrowing story in episode 80. No more rioting of that scale had happened, but the Know-Nothings were still active and influential, and they were very anti-immigrant, and anti-Catholic. So, in the face of these two challenges, one from within the church and one from without, the new bishop stepped in. He was tiny, only about five foot two. He didn't regard worldly niceties important. His cassock was perpetually threadbare and ragged. And he was uninterested in worldly politics. His concern was the care of souls and the education of children. To these ends, he focused on building churches and schools and increasing the prayerfulness of his flock. One major development was the establishment of a citywide 40 hours devotion schedule. Now, for those unfamiliar, this would mean that parishes would trade off praying before the Blessed Sacrament for 40 straight hours. Sometimes it would mean a procession from the parish that was completing its 40 hours devotion to the parish that was taking over. 
Some in the city, still wary of the anti-Catholic activism that was around there, tried to dissuade him from organizing this. So he took the matter to prayer. Now, he got a sign that he should go ahead with it when, one evening, while working at his desk, he fell asleep in his chair. He awoke, and his candle had burned down and scorched some of the papers on his desk. He was grateful that they hadn't ignited and burned the place down around him. But a voice came to him saying, As the flames are burning here without consuming or injuring the writing, so shall I pour out my grace in the Blessed Sacrament without prejudice to my honor. Fear no profanation, therefore. Hesitate no longer to carry out your design for my glory. And so, the Forty Hours Devotions began. He also welcomed many women's religious communities into his diocese, and he instituted a new one, the Sisters of St. Francis of Philadelphia. The founding mother superior of this order, Maria Anna Bull Bachman, was an immigrant from Bavaria, and she was a widow after her husband had been killed by some know-nothings. All of these religious orders opened schools, hospitals, and orphanages in short order. School and church building were so important to him that during his episcopacy, new parish churches were built and opened at the rate of nearly one every month. Insane. I know, seriously. (laughs) Many were specially dedicated to ethnic groups since so many Catholics were coming from non-English-speaking countries. This allowed them to have their ethnic devotions and festivals, plus confessions and preaching in their own languages. But, of course, Mass and the other rituals of the Church were in Latin in every parish. So no matter where you went, the sacraments were the same. One of his greatest landmarks was the Great Cathedral Basilica of St. Peter and Paul. It is a monumental structure. But if you ever visit, notice how there are almost no windows down around the main level of the church. The windows are almost entirely up at the upper part of the wall. And this was intentional. He knew that such a prominent Catholic edifice in such a prominent place in the city would become a target. So to prevent windows from being shattered by anti-Catholic activity, he simply didn't have windows added down where rioters could easily reach them, even with rocks. And as for schools, well, when he arrived, there were just two diocesan schools. When he died in 1860, there were 100. With this incredible increase, Philadelphia became the first diocese with its own school system in the country. And he did it all with a marked lack of personal aggrandizement or being whom anyone else thought he should be. He still only had one pair of boots. He still wore the tattered cassock. When he received gifts of new vestments, he would regift them to priests or parishes that didn't have any. So it was a terrible shock when he died suddenly on January 5th, 1860. The exact cause of death isn't known. Some say heart attack, some say stroke. But what happened was simple. He was running errands around town on foot, and he simply collapsed in the street. His health had been fragile for some time, and he had spent himself so so severely that it could have been in any number of things. He was buried in the crypt of the Redemptorist Parish of St. Peter in Philadelphia. The crypt at the time had a dirt floor and wasn't intended for a large number of pilgrims. Well, the people made their thoughts on that matter crystal clear. The priests in charge at St. Peter attempted to keep to a minimum the people making pilgrimages to his tomb, but they just wouldn't cooperate. Good for them. (laughs) The people knew his sanctity and desired to pray near his remains. The priests insisted you should pray for him, not to him. 
And there is some wisdom in that. But when such a mass of faithful so ardently honor a man with such obvious sanctity, well, you know, that says something. Indeed it does. As the pilgrims kept coming, the crypt was improved enough for pilgrims to visit more comfortably. And as the cause proceeded toward the inevitable canonization, it was renovated into a beautiful shrine. His body, which is not incorrupt, is in a glass sarcophagus under the altar, clad in mass vestments with a wax mask covering his face. But even with that, it took many years for his cause to open. He wasn't declared venerable for 61 years. Benedict XV did that in 1921. Then he was beatified during the Second Vatican Council in 1963, and finally he was canonized by Pope St. Paul VI in 1977. In his sermon during the canonization mass, the Pope said of the new saint, John Newman bore the image of Christ. He experienced in his innermost being the need to proclaim by word and example the wisdom and power of God and to preach the crucified Christ. And in the passion of the Lord, he found strength and the inspiration of his ministry. Passio Christi, comfortum me. Passion of Christ, comfort me. The Passion of Christ and the Eucharist were truly John Nepomucene Newman's comforts in this life. May we all learn to take that same comfort no matter what challenges may confront us. St. John Newman, pray for us. Pray for us. You've been listening to American Catholic History, sponsored by Beatrix Media on the StarQuest Production Network. If you've been enjoying our podcast, please help others find it by sharing this episode and by giving us a five-star rating and a good review. And be sure to check out our sponsor, Beatrix Media, providing writing, digital marketing, website strategy and construction, and search engine optimization services. Visit BeatrixMedia.com. Experience your world communicated. Also, please support the many fine productions of SQPN at sqpn.com slash give. To learn more about St. John Newman, to find previous episodes, or to learn about our upcoming pilgrimages to important and unforgettable Catholic holy sites, please visit AmericanCatholicHistory.org. And be sure to sign up for our weekly newsletter for the latest information and updates. We also love feedback and hearing about great Catholic history sites and stories from all over. You can email us at history at sqpn.com or find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash American Catholic History, on Instagram at ACH underscore podcast, or follow us on Twitter at ACH 1513. I'm Noel Hester Crow. And I'm Tom Crow. Thank you once again for joining us on American Catholic History, sponsored by Beatrix Media and produced by StarQuest.